0: April 17, 1987. Dear Sir, Because of our communications regarding the apparent disappearance of Gertrude Trudy Snedeker, I thought you might be interested in recent media reports surrounding the case. These stories appeared in at least two central Indiana newspapers and have been distributed statewide by the UPI News Service. Because the stories provide a recap of the circumstances of the case since it began nearly six years ago, I thought this would be an easy way to familiarize you with it and bring you up to date on the developments. As you can see, we have been faced with a complex case, and one that appears to be growing more complex as time goes by. Because of the many jurisdictions this case involves, and the scope of the investigation so far, I believe cooperation between departments could be the key to bringing those responsible to justice. Sincerely, Captain John Munden, Hancock County Sheriff Department. That letter was addressed to Lieutenant Greg Meeks of the Caramel Police Department in Indiana. The Captain Munden who wrote it was Detective Sergeant Munden in 1981 when Laura Morris went missing. And that's probably where we should start with Laura going missing, because everything after that may well have occurred because of it. But the beginning as the public comes to know a story is never the actual beginning. We will be well into this story by the time police are certain that something very bad probably happened to Laura Morris. By then, the mysteries were already starting to pile up, not only for Hancock County Sheriff's Department in Indiana, but also authorities in other jurisdictions in the state, as well as Louisiana. A man whose throat was slit in his bed. Another man who allegedly met Steve Snedeker, Laura Morris' father, in New Orleans and was never seen again. Another that went off to a job opportunity and he was never seen again. And yet another that disappeared off the face of the earth a little after the Snedeker family fled Indiana for Florida. But back before her body was found, just days after Laura went missing, her father, Steve, for some reason decided that he knew who killed his daughter, Laura. He was adamant. So adamant, in fact, that he waltzed into the Hancock County Sheriff's Department and dumped a grocery bag containing cash money onto the desk of Detective Sergeant John Munden. Snedeker demanded the agency start surveilling his business associates 24-7, and he had names. We used a lot of that money to watch Steve. Detective Sergeant John Mundin would, years later, tell an Orlando Sentinel reporter.
1: He was searching for his daughter's killer, and he was doing whatever he had to do to make him fucking confess to it.
2: And he eliminated one after another. We left, the canal was right behind us, and there were gators everywhere.
0: Yeah, they could have taken a little boat ride and... No one would ever find her.
2: Yeah, you he could have killed her in better days out what That was always my theory.
0: This story is not just about Steve Snedeker's 22-year-old daughter, Laura Morris, whose body was found in an Indiana cornfield eight months after she went missing, with multiple gunshot wounds to the head. This story isn't just about Tony Lambert, who went missing from New Orleans about a month after Steve's daughter went missing. Allegedly, he and Snedeker went for an airplane ride over the Gulf of Mexico and only one of them returned. This story isn't just about Gene Lindner, the 47-year-old president of an aviation hardware company who was found nine days after that alleged plane ride I just told you about by his eight-year-old daughter in his bed with his throat cut. Detective Sergeant John Munden would later marry Gene Lindner's widow, Nieves but I'm told that homicide is unrelated. This story isn't just about Chuck Smith, the one-time employee of Snedeker's oil company, who saw Laura Morris in a vehicle at a gas station just a day or two before she went missing with a scruffy-looking dude who he thought she appeared to be afraid of. Chuck went missing, too. And according to Detective Sergeant John Munden, Steve's wife, Gertrude, Trudy, was responsible for that one. This story isn't just about James Wilkes, Steve's right-hand man, who Steve's oldest son said followed them to Florida about three months after his sister disappeared looking for work, and then he was never seen again. This story isn't even about Tony McCullough, the other Tony in this case. There are two. The pair of Tonys tried to buy his oil recycling business the summer Steve's daughter went missing, only that deal fell through because Steve refused to open up the books. This Tony, Tony McCullough, had a hit put out on him, and that hit was acquired through an advertisement in Soldier of Fortune magazine. This story isn't even about Gertrude, a.k.a. Trudy Snediger, Steve's wife. Well, they were actually divorced at the time, but they still lived together. She went missing sometime in 1986, but... Nobody can quite be sure exactly when that happened, because she wasn't even reported missing for over a year. This story is about all of that. It's all related, like a series of dominoes. When the first one falls, it triggers the next, and the next, and the next. But at its core, this story is about a criminal and a cop a con man and a lawman two men whose lives became inextricably intertwined in the summer of 1981, and neither of them would ever be the same. Steve Snedeker believed a couple men who had tried and failed to buy his oil recycling business that summer were responsible for his missing daughter. At least that was his first theory. But according to John Munden, Steve Snedeker was wrong. Sean Munden had a theory. He believed that Trudy Snediger killed her own daughter after an argument that somehow went bad. But he could never prove that theory, although it appears that Steve Snediger may have gotten a whiff of it because the last person to go missing was Trudy Snediger. On this season of Down and Away, I hope to untangle a saga of murder, deceit, family dysfunction and disloyalty and take a look at what drove the strange relationship between a lawman and a criminal. Talk to me about Laura's relationship with Steve and Trudy um, around the time she went missing, but also prior to that, what was their relationship like?
1: Well, boys didn't seem to have too much difficulty with the parents. They pretty much did whatever the parents told them to do. But the girls, because they were married to other men, myself and Bryce, you know, they, the the girls had a a greater influence over them than what the boys' wives had over them. Mm -hmm. So there was, there was more resistance. There was more arguing that went on between the daughters and the mom. And, and I'm, I'm saying them mom because she's the only one I ever heard actually argue with them.
0: And what were the arguments about? Do you remember? Was it just they're trying to be controlling?
1: Well, yeah, it could, it could be about the way something was being done in office or you know this that or another thing but always always in some way kind of manipulate the girls and, and kind of beat them down a little bit you know to make them more submissive but it was just a controlling
0: atmosphere. One of the articles said that Laura was the accountant for the business. Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: So Laura worked at the Snedeker's office before she went missing. And then once they, her yeah. family went to Florida, she didn't have a job?
1: She didn't have a job.
0: And yet she was staying at her parents' house at the Snedeker home. She sat-
1: yes, that's correct.
0: And I imagine they wanted to sell that house at some point, right? I mean, they were gone.
1: It was actually, I think it was already on the market to be sold.
0: In the summer of 1981, Steve and Gertrude Snedeker were itching to get out of Greenfield, Indiana. Steve was in the oil recycling business. I don't know anything about this oil recycling business. Just give me like the, the, the you know, fifth grade version of basically what the, the business was, what they did.
1: They go pick up oil out of used gas stations, new car garages, you know, mechanic shops everywhere, you know, equipment companies, any place that changes oil and machinery, mm-hmm. they, went go, they went to go pick up the used oil. And then they would take it back and they would push it through clay filters to get out all the sediments and you could sell them for recycled oil.
0: Oh. So did you work for the company too? Yes, ma'am. what did you do did you oh well, did you drive a truck what did you do
1: well i started off just working in the yard I became a pretty good pipe cutter and pipe fitter. i piped, I piped up most of the oil plant in greenfield and uh cut and threaded all the pipe put them together and that kind of stuff but I would be I would load unload trucks and load some ons and do the mechanic work on the
0: trucks. And what are you loading no. into the semis? Oh, I'll be
1: loading
0: oil. Okay. You, load oil yeah, I'm sure some of these questions sound dumb. I just don't know anything about that business, so, so I have okay. to you know, I have to ask. So you're so it's like drums of oil, basically, used oil that you have collected? Correct. And then you're taking it to a place to get it cleaned, is that what the the premise is?
1: No ma'am. No ma'am. We did the cleaning there.
0: Oh, okay, so you you get you acquire the used oil um, and then right. you clean it there and then what do you do? Sell it elsewhere? Correct. Oh, okay, see, I didn't know all that. That makes sense to me. So then is he selling, do you think, oil in other states? Or because I'll, I'll tell you this. I found an article today and it was in '84, um, so it was a few years after Laura went missing. And it was actually an article about some corruption or some issues in the hazardous materials, um, uh, companies. And the only person that was mentioned in it was Snediger. They were talking. Well, yeah. So they, okay. they were talking about an internal investigation they were doing into, into companies that were taking hazardous waste oil and dumping it places. And there were other dangerous things going on and perhaps organized crime, um, attachments yeah. to it right. and, and they only gave like hints basically in the newspaper but it was funny to me that he was the only literal name that they gave and they mentioned laura going missing and how there were things going on in this in this hazardous waste um business right. businesses that was you know some sketchy stuff that they had developed this whole group of people to investigate right and
1: and, and there was the oil used to be used for a lot of stuff it's, that's been one of the biggest fluctuating industries <laughs> really in this country because it would go from one day where you, they pay you to pick it up to you pay them to pick it up to it was free to, all right, well, we're going to pay you to pick this up again because it's got, you know, it,
0: huh.
1: and then it would get, went back to where you had to pay to pick it up again.
0: And I imagine that fluctuation in whether you're paying or you're being paid Means that the difference between your company making a lot of money and you not doing so well at certain points, right? Yeah,
1: pretty much. I mean, it fluctuates on the other, on the on the back end too, you
0: know. So then it makes sense that he'd have this business that was doing okay, but he might be supplementing it by doing other shady stuff, you know, um, like the taking empty trucks to you know make money off. Right. Like with Buck. So he had Buck as a source for that. I mean, if he didn't have Buck on the other end, yeah. he wouldn't have oh, I'm, it. <clears throat>
1: I'm sure Buck got paid handsomely for
0: it. Now, do you know why they ended up wanting to sell it and go to going to Florida in the, in the first place? What was the reason? The business? You know,
1: I, I don't recall what it was. It seemed like it was a very good one. They just wanted to move to
0: Florida. Do so you think...
1: That's a thousand miles away from my
0: family. Yeah, and I just, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a reason why they would be moving. Do you think there was any, could have been anything going on that they were trying to get away from?
1: It, it, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it may have been because they found a good market down here, and, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Steve and Gertrude, Trudy is what everyone called her, had been on a month's long push to get their entire family to move with them to Florida. Now, the Snedegers were not your average leave-it-to-beaver type of parents, hoping to keep family together so they could enjoy one another's company. In fact, it did not appear that most of the family even enjoyed being around one another. Steve and Trudy were described as controlling people who insisted on getting their way and using any means necessary to get that. What they wanted in 1981 was to get out of Indiana and head south, where the water was warm and the air was... different. I say different because I suspect that they may have had other reasons for leaving, reasons that had little to do with the beaches and warm Florida air. The Snedegers always seemed to be running from something, and that was usually the last illegal thing that Steve Snediger did. In the 1970s, their family was on the run, one step ahead of the FBI, who had been tracking them across the Southwest for about two years. They slept from hotel to hotel, living under assumed names, in the hopes that Steve could avoid charges involving an investigation into a tractor theft ring. This story is interesting for how it illustrates the people that Steve Snedeker was associating with as far back as the 1960s. Let me see if I can paint you a picture. So three men decide to jack some pricey lawn equipment from George Waller's farm equipment company in Port Clinton, Ohio. Two of these nincompoops get pulled over on the highway with said lawn equipment beneath a tarp that they'd also apparently stolen. And they get hauled into the pokey where it was learned that nincompoop number one was wanted out of Chillicothe, Ohio for jamming, the leg of a barstool about three or four inches into the forehead of another bar patron during a fight. You'd think, with that kind of monkey on your back, you would sit tight, maybe not break into a farm equipment company and instead, you know, chill the hell out, enjoy your free time before comeuppance find you. Nope, not Ezra Nunley, aka nincompoop number one. He and his buddy, nincompoop number two, also known as William Regan. They had to have that lawn equipment. But Steve Snedeker got away, and he ran. But they did end up finding Steve. It took a few years. He was living on the lam with his family, dragging them from hotel to hotel, living under assumed names. But law enforcement eventually found him in Texas and hauled him back to Ohio. Steve Snedeker pled not guilty when he was indicted on March 17th of 1972 on five counts of grand larceny. He was released from the county jail when his brother posted the $5,000 bond. As preparation for Steve Snedeker's trial, both Ezra Nunley and William Regan were brought to be deposed in the matter of the state of Ohio versus Steve Snedeker. But something interesting happened in the interim, according to Steve's sister, Mary Jones. Mary would later tell police that Steve sent word to the mother of one of the guys in jail that if he testified against Steve, he had better think about the safety of his family. I'm not sure whether it was Nunley or Regan who was the recipient of this friendly warning. Perhaps it was both, but in the end, Steve Snedeker pled guilty to the lesser-included charge, entering upon the land of another, that being George Waller's Farm Equipment Company. The judge agreed to strike the other counts in the indictment. He fined Steve $500, And sentenced him to spend six months in the Ottawa County Jail. But that sentence was suspended on condition that Snedeker be placed on probation and pay his court costs within six months. So that jury trial never happened. And that story is a good primer on Steve Snedeker's problem solving skills. And you do not want to be on the business end of those. Now, William Oliver Regan, aka Bill, nincompoop number two who I alluded to earlier, wasn't exactly an income poop. And because Regan is going to show up much later in this story in a way that is very compelling, now is probably as good a time as any to give you a rundown on him.
1: John mentioned something about a police officer that had gotten killed somehow. Um, He didn't really have a whole lot of details, but we were talking about what was going on in Fort Clinton. See, I didn't even realize it was a theft that he was involved in, but it makes perfect
0: sense to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of low low rent type stuff. They were stealing lawnmowers yeah. from a farm equipment company.
1: Right.
0: So I'm just going to have to keep um, plugging along and try to find out that the the officer, because he, he wouldn't be running from the law to that extent and changing his name if it was just for the, the, thre- the theft stuff, because that wasn't as high, right. you know what I mean? Right, right. So there had to be something bigger there that that's why he was changing his names, name and everything. I think so. Yeah. So there's something. We, I just got to find it.
1: Whatever it was, it did catch up with him. And uh, to my knowledge, he spent no time because of it. Did you get the name of the third person as well?
0: Uh, yes, uh, William Regan. Bill
1: Reagan. God damn it, I knew it.
0: R-E-A-G-I-N. <laughs> that's That's
1: the dude that was there when Steve died. That dude, I believe, is a true, honest-to-God hitman.
0: It's R-E-A-G-I-N? Yep. That's the guy you were telling me about? Yep. So that's how far back they go. They go...
1: Way back. Obviously to there.
0: Yes, 69.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to... So Reagan ended up in Atlanta, Georgia. Doing what? I don't know. He was a fucking hitman, I think. I swear, I swear to God, I think that's what he was. Nobody liked him. He'd come around from time to time, but rather would say that, man, he was one of the scariest
2: people I ever met.
0: <laughs> you know, they pulled both those guys in to do, give depositions. They brought yep. they brought Nutley or whatever. What's his name? I keep pronouncing it wrong. The other guy who was the, the barstool yeah, guy. I, I don't know. Um, his name was... Uh, um, uh, let me look for it again real quick anyway um Ezra Nunley okay so they pulled him from the Ohio penitentiary um to give his deposition and they pulled um William Reagan in too what might have happened and the reason why Snedeker might have got off is Bill Reagan uh, Snedeker might have got to him and said if you you keep your mouth shut I'll make I'll take care of you and so, and then all in the years later, Reagan, he may have been coming back for money and they may have still had some dealings. If he was there when Steve died, there's a reason why he was all the way back. Didn't, there was. Huh? You said he showed up b- before he died, right? And went to the hospital? Yeah.
1: Yeah, he, Steve was in the hospital. Bill Reagan came down. The night Steve died, okay, Bill Reagan was at the hospital so was Wanda, so was Brenda, so was Bud, so was Joe.
0: And they were all there when he died? The, like, the actual moment yeah. he died?
1: Yes, yeah, because yeah. Brenda was there when Bud went in, okay? And, and, her, and heard what Bud said. He walked in, looked at his dad, said, I got one question for you, where's my mother? And his dad wouldn't tell him. And Bud stormed out of the room.
0: Jeez. Bill Regan was a big, strapping fella in his prime. Born in 1923, he stood six foot two, 230 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, and he liked him some auto theft. Well, robbing in general seems to have been within his bailiwick. At one time, Bill Regan was listed as Georgia's most wanted fugitive. But that rascal committed a whole lot of crimes before that happened. In 1951, he was on parole after having served four years on 11 counts of car theft during an incident where he got into a police chase where two Atlanta, Georgia patrolmen were seriously injured when their patrol vehicle struck another car. Regan and another man confessed to 12 armed robberies in December of 1953, and for the next four years, he did time in multiple prisons, including Butts County, Fulton County, and Gwinnett. In March of 56, he escaped and was on the run for about five weeks before he was recaptured and sent to do hard time at Georgia's Rock Quarry Prison in Macon County near Montezuma. By that time, he had about a 45-year sentence riding his ass, with only a couple having been served. He must not have taken kindly to the place because he and six other prisoners escaped in May of 1958. Regan was not content to Netflix and chill or whatever its 1958 equivalent. He committed multiple armed robberies while he was out, some of which included tying victims up. Now here's the kicker well, the first kicker. Old Bill was out for a year before they finally tracked him down, exactly one month shy of a year from the day that he had escaped. George's most wanted fugitive surrendered when local authorities approached him as he worked as a filling attendant at New Casino Truck Stop. He had married a local Chillicothe girl named Patricia and was living under the name of William Newsom. Still facing 42 years on top of whatever he would get for the escape, Bill insisted that he would fight extradition from Chillicothe because, quote, they'll kill me if I go back. Now, the second place that he escaped from was known to be a tough place. It wasn't called The Rock for nothing. Prior to his last escape around 1956, He was one of 39 prisoners who had smashed their legs with sledgehammers to draw attention to the inhumane treatment they say they had received there. And when locals got wind of his story, they rallied around him. Local attorneys interested in the case took petitions with the signatures of 3,200 Chillicotheans to the extradition hearing. They were aghast at the cruel treatment that he said he received and believed that he had gone straight after his escape. His boss even said that he was a trusted employee. Meanwhile, Georgia authorities were still calling Regan one of the most dangerous prisoners they ever had in their penal system. In the end, Governor DeSalle ordered Regan extradited back to the prison camp in May of 1959. But that wasn't the end. Remember when I told you there was another kicker? Well, here it is. About three years later, Bill Regan was paroled. I'm going to add an addendum to that kicker. Three years after that, his jail records reflect that his sentence was commuted in October of 1965. Quote, Commutation and Restoration of Civil and Political Rights. Now, I feel as though I can tell you with almost 100% certainty, let's say 99% to be safe, but I can tell you with a high degree of certainty that that did not occur because Bill Regan was innocent of all the charges that led up to that 45-year sentence. He pled guilty to all of those auto theft charges. And more. Somebody did some informing on somebody. Perhaps some kind of quid pro quo, the details of which are probably in some FBI file that will never see the light of day. I'd like to say that old Bill got out and hit the straight and narrow, but that didn't happen either. In 1968, he was indicted with Ezra Nunley on those five counts of grand larceny in Port Clinton, Ohio, the same ones that Steve Snedeker ran from and eventually slithered out from under. I don't know how much time Reagan did on those charges, but he must have had a lucky rabbit's foot in his pocket or something because he would pop up again later in Indiana, associated with Steve Snedeker, and then in Florida as well. Bill was one of Steve's running buddies, and that gives you an idea of the people he surrounds himself with. And that's why I told you that story. All of that is a part of the backdrop upon which Steve's daughter Laura will go missing. By 1979, Steve's oil recycling business was booming. Although there are folks who believe J&S Oil, that's the name of the company, was cleaning more than dirty oil. Nobody could really figure out how he had all that money. I'm told his oil business wasn't exactly making him the kind of scratch that would support the cash he had on hand. I heard about dirty oil deals he did as well. Buck Estes, what was his relationship to Snediger? Oh,
1: his relationship to Snediger was his best friend. He worked at a company in Newcastle, Indiana, where Steve Snediger would take empty loads of oil, empty tankers in, and get paid for like 6
0: thousand gallons of oil. So, yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. He knew what he was into.
0: <laughs> you just described something that sounded illegal. I mean they're saying they're getting paid for something that's not even in the tank, is that what basically you're saying? Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, it was illegal activity, no question about it.
0: Steve was also a pilot, known to fly in and out of the airport, sometimes coming in without landing lights in the dead of night, and then offloading bags into the trunk of the car dispatched to pick him up. Did you ever hear anything about Snediger being involved in the drug trade? Yes. Tell me what you know about that.
2: Well, he uh, obtained his uh, pilot's license and bought an airplane. And we would meet when he would make these flights, he would uh, come back and there were a couple times I was with him and uh, Brenda's ex-husband, uh, they would uh, meet him at the airfield in Greenfield, and he would fly in, but he wouldn't fly in with any lights on. Oh, wow. Uh, and then things would be put in the trunk, unbeknownst to, you know, any of us, what it was, but we assumed, uh, like I said, and then we heard... Uh, Brenda would talk, and uh, you know, I would hear the boys, Joe and Bud, and I know that would have been a lot of they held over their heads, and um, uh,
0: so barking. would would he? Would Snedeker go alone, or would there be someone flying to and um, from with him?
2: As far as I know, he was alone. They were a scary bunch of people.
0: I wanted, I'd i like to start back, um, you know, a little bit further back and ask you about what you remember as far as Laura's relationship with Trudy and Stephen.
2: It was pretty, uh, I would say, volatile. <laughs> uh, she didn't get along with them. They didn't get along with her as long as that... Uh, uh, She cowed out to him, everything was fine, and she wasn't like that, so she was uh, always wanting to do her own thing, and uh, uh, they didn't like that, because they didn't have control over
0: her. So is is that basically the type of people you think they are, is that they were very controlling and they didn't like um, when they couldn't control what her actions were?
2: Exactly. They're wicked, evil people. I was best friends with, uh, started out best friends with her sister, Brenda, Mm -hmm. in uh, in high school. And then uh, through high school, uh, I got to meet her family. And like I said, Laura and Brenda and I, we got along real well and always out doing things, you know, teenagers. And Mm -hmm. back in high school, she told me a lot about, you know, they lived... uh, under assumed names off and on uh, most of their lives, you know, uh, childhood lives in just about every state.
0: Huh. So, and for, for what? Like, did she know at the time what they were running from?
2: Uh, other than the fact that uh, he, uh, I know he did a lot of uh, uh, skimming as far as the oil businesses go, tax wise. I guess you would say tax evasion. Um, then when I was 17, uh, I started dating her brother, uh, Bud, they call him. He's Steve Jr. Okay. Uh, then we got married. So I got to see a whole lot here, a whole lot after we, you know, time I was 17 all the way up until uh, we got divorced which was like four years later or so
0: so you two were married for about four years
2: just about yeah i'd say three three and a half years yeah because we, we we got married in uh 79 and we divorced in 82
0: do you remember um i had heard that um trudy had flown to california while um uh, Laura's husband was in the, in the Marines, and she had flown to uh, 29 Palms, I guess, and taken Laura and her daughter away, um, and he wasn't even aware of it, I guess, until he returned. Do you remember that? Yes. What was, what was the story behind that? Why was she, I mean, how was she physically able to, you know, drag them away from there? How did that, you know, go about?
2: Uh, most likely it was uh, um, she threatened them. Uh, She was always threatening uh, the boys or the girls, you know, if they didn't do what her and Steve wanted them to do, then we'll take this away from you. You won't get any more uh, money, you won't get any more uh, cars, houses, whatever.
0: So they held money or financial means over the kids' heads over their lifetimes? Absolutely that's that's the basis of how they control them well what was she giving Laura at that time like what was she was she giving her money monthly or something when when her husband was in the Marines what was she what could she at that point have been um holding over her head um specifically do you know
2: that I don't know uh the only thing I know is Laura um she worked at the oil plant there in Greenfield when they had the oil plant there in Greenfield um, Um,
0: Oh, so she could have maybe even held her job uh, over her head then.
2: Surely, yes. In fact, when we moved from Greenfield, Florida, it wasn't an option, you know, because I wanted to stay here with my family. My family and I were real close. And, uh, you know, you, you stay here, we get divorced, or you go with us. And, of course, we had a child at the time, and he was two. Uh, so we all caravanned, packed up and caravanned down there like a bunch of gypsies and, uh, lived in and out of motels and hotels until they found property in, uh, in, uh, Esther, uh, Florida. And, uh, well, actually, before that, we were in Daytona off and on. And, uh, they had a trailer, and we lived in rental houses. And then they bought us a trailer, and it was right next door to them. Uh, just all kind of everybody always stayed together. to always keeping an eye on all of us. So.
0: so all the all the kids and their um, their spouses went. Was it just you and your husband, or what, was it Brenda and her husband as well?
2: Oh, every one of them, there was Joe, his wife, Debbie, uh, Bud and I, Brenda and Danny, her kids, my child. It was all of us, yeah, the whole family.
0: Why did they move to Florida? What was the reason to leave?
2: They sold, as far as I know, they just, they sold the business and uh, they're in Greenfield and wanted to start up another oil business in uh, uh, Florida. Florida they they had offered her to buy a hotel and she could run a hotel, and she refused. She didn't want to go, and uh, they weren't really keen on that. So, um
0: they offered to buy her a hotel that she could run, like a what, a bed and breakfast or something.
2: No, just a motel hotel.
0: In the summer of 1981, after months of build-up that included bullying and threats. Trudy and Steve left for Florida with the understanding that other family members would follow. Not everyone was initially on board. I want to talk about with you, because you and Tammy both really did a good job describing about this Florida move. So tell me how long... You had basically told me before when we talked that it was a long sort of calculated move, that they had been building up to this wanting everyone to move to Florida with them.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact... Brenda and I put our house up on the market because, well, they thought we were going to move to Florida, but Brenda and I secretly had been discussing, we're not moving to Florida because we just, we're not going to do it. They're, they're too, too controlling and nothing you ever do is right. So, you know, I, I wasn't going to live like that. Brenda was tired of living like that. So we sold our house and moved to Greenwood, Indiana, <laughs> instead of to Florida. But so I mean, so there's a lot of time there that that it was a it was a thought out thing. It wasn't just like overnight.
0: When you moved to Greenwood had they had Stephen Trudy already moved to Florida?
1: Mm, I think they had been going back and forth but no the business was still actually operating in Greenfield at that time.
0: So how did you guys how did that go over? You and uh, by the oh, way, we are moving did, to Green. It didn't go over good. <laughs> was there an argument? It,
1: uh, somewhat, not 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 to a great extent, but uh, we had tried to separate from them, you know, a time or two before that, even so, just because of the nature of things. It's hard. First off, it's hard to work for family.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and second, you know, I I already knew at that point, Steve wasn't really the honorable
0: man he appeared to be, you know? So you got a sense of his maybe shady business stuff? Yes. Laura Morris, Steve and Trudy's other daughter, refused to leave. At the time she went missing, Laura was staying at 73 Shadeland Drive in Greenfield, Indiana, the Snedeker family home. On August 10, 1981, Trudy Snedeker arrived in Indiana. Her daughters, Laura and Brenda, picked her up from the Indianapolis International Airport. They took her to a steakhouse in the mall, and Brenda's husband, Danny, met them after he finished up a racquetball session. You had told me the first time we talked that um, you got a sense that she didn't want to go back with Trudy. Tell me about that. She did not.
1: All right. Well, all right. Here's what happened. Laura was actually staying with us in Greenwood, right? She wasn't living out, staying out in Greenfield by herself in that house. All right, her and Brandy were living with Brendan and I. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but not at that time. Because, look, two weeks prior to when Judy got here, Laura came home one night, pulled out of her head, you know, higher and above, and Brandy's eyes were just beat red, and she wasn't acting right, so Brandy had somehow gotten high also.
0: What? All right,
1: just by, just by contact. People all kept they sitting around smoking joints and filling it up with fucking you know, room up with smoke, whatever. So, Brenda and I sent Laura down and said, look, look, you want to go out and do this yourself? Go right ahead. Feel free. You're a grown-ass woman. But from now on, if you're going to go do that, you're going to leave Brandy here with us because she ain't come, she can't come back here like this no more. And uh, so, Laura took offense to it and grabbed up her kid and her, all her belongings that she had there and took off, and that's when she moved back out to Greenfield, two weeks before Mom got home. And that night, after we went and had dinner at the steakhouse, Laura wasn't even hardly talking to us, okay? But Laura wanted to stay at our house that night. She knew what was going on. She knew what was getting ready to happen. She knew there was going to be a fucking huge-ass argument because she knew why Mom came back up here to start with, which was to make her come back down to Florida. One
0: thing led to another. When... I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: At any rate, there's a real strong case that they had an argument that night, and she was expecting it to happen.
0: Danny told me that Laura was on the outs with he and Brenda at the time. But even with that tension, he said that Laura expressed an interest in staying with them that night, rather than returning to the house on Shadeland Drive with Trudy. This aspect will be contradicted by information in the police reports, where we will later learn that Laura had told two witnesses that she was actually upset with her mother, Trudy, because she had planned to stay at her sister's house, rather than with her. It will not be as clear, however, why Laura said this, but we'll get into those detailed statements later in the podcast. One thing is clear. Laura and her mother did not always get along. It seems as though the intention of Trudy's visit was to put pressure on Laura to come back with her to Florida and bring Laura's daughter Brandy with them. Steve and Trudy did not like Laura's ex-husband, Bryce, and they did everything in their power to keep them apart. And as this story progresses, you will learn more about the lengths to which they'd go when they weren't getting their way. How long did she live with you guys?
1: Uh, it wasn't long. Maybe three, four months. And if that, I don't know.
0: How, was she just smoking pot, or was she more deeply into drugs than that?
1: No, there's some rumors they were uh, selling pills and everything else.
0: So she came home one night, and she had Brandy with her, and she was all strung out. Yeah. And at that time, she was right. not with, with Bryce? They were separated?
2: Right, they were.
0: But were they still seeing Bryce, each other? Living up in Gosia. Yeah.
2: Pardon?
0: Were they still seeing each other, though? Um...
2: Uh,
1: well, there's there's some speculation there, you know, that maybe Laura's thinking about getting back together with him. In fact, Bryce said that they had been talking about that, but whether that's true or not, I don't
0: know. His, I spoke, I actually did an interview with his mom. She was real kind, and she let me record her too. And she was, Barbara, is that her name? Yeah, she was real nice, and she was telling me. um and I got a sense that sh- that's why she wanted him living with her, too, because he may have had some similar issues, and she wanted to be able to keep out an it, eye out for Brandy. It
2: was.
0: Yeah, right. It was. And um, so she was telling me that, um, what was I going to just tell you about, um, oh, that s- close to the time that, and it must have been probably within that two-week period, around the time she went missing, she had called her and asked if she could come move back there, and she had told her yes, of course, so... You know, it does seem like she was going to be trying to move back with Bryce, you know, or there or whatever. And it's probably because she saw the writing on the wall. I mean, she didn't want to go to Florida. They were selling that house. She didn't have a lot of choices at that time, you know. Right.
1: Absolutely. I get
0: that. Tell me, what was her and her and we were talking a little bit about um, by text about Bryce and Laura's relationship. And I asked you if there was any, you know why do you know why they got divorced first of all
1: uh irreconcilable differences <laughs> didn't, were they actually divorced i don't even remember yeah they got divorced
0: in january that year and so uh, do you remember no. them fighting when you, you know when you were around them
1: um uh, yeah you know, it's a long time ago but yeah we used to go over their house and play cards and stuff when and i did and all of them same town together and there are times that, you know, it ended in an argument between two of them overnight, Or when we get there, we can do, see Laura been crying or something. You know, but...
0: So, it, in the beginning when I was researching this, I, I sort of was under the impression that Steve and Trudy has sort of been the reason. But it does seem like that Laura and Bryce were already having problems.
1: Yeah, and it could have been the tension because of Steve and Trudy, too. Yeah. That's what was causing arguments, because Bryce was pretty obstinate. Bryce didn't like him at all,
0: okay. Mm, yeah.
1: And uh, so he didn't want nothing to do. With them. Nothing in the whatsoever. ever. They didn't like Price too much either. Hmm. But so so that could have been the, the, the basis of the arguments. You know. Yeah, could or
0: definitely be. Being pulled and pushed in a couple directions and she's kind of like, you know, and Laura, I kind of feel bad for her because she's got, you know, she's got parents that are controlling and manipulative and not real great. And then if her husband and her are fighting, she's like, you know, which, where, where where do I go? The worst possible, you know, which is better situation for me, you know? On that night, Laura and her mother eventually returned to the family home on Shadeland Drive. We don't know much about that night because the only person's account that we have is Trudy's. Based on phone records, we do know that there were two calls, around 11 p.m. and then just before midnight, between Laura and Bryce, who lived in Goshen. Those two calls are the last time that anyone but her killer heard from her. The next morning, 22-year-old Laura Morris was gone. Trudy told police that she woke up around 6.30 and Laura wasn't there. She said the TV was still on, the family room door was partially open, and Laura's keys, her purse, and other personal items were still there. When police arrived, they found no signs of a struggle or any evidence to suggest that a crime had taken place. They did begin an exhaustive search of the area to no avail. The next day, Trudy Snediger told police that she got a phone call at the house with an unfamiliar voice that said, I'm gonna get you sucker, or I'm bound to get you sucker. Police put a recording device on the phone after that, and then the next day there was another call, and appeared to be a woman's voice, quote, uttering some words bearing sexual overtones. And then the caller hung up. So two calls within two days, the first one from a man, and the second one from a woman. John Munden told reporters at that time that he feared foul play because of the time that had elapsed, and nobody had contacted family or police demanding money. Trudy Snedeker was quoted in that same article saying, I don't think I'll ever see her again. I expect the worst. I'm hoping, praying it's a ransom thing. That's the only thing I've got. In a heartbreaking last paragraph, that same article stated that Laura's daughter Brandy, quote, is living this month with her father and she has not been told that her mother is missing. Meanwhile, in a scene straight out of a bad cop movie, just days after his daughter Laura goes missing, Steve Snedeker marches into the Hancock County Sheriff's Office, and he drops a sack of cash on Detective Sergeant John Munden's desk and demands that they find his daughter. To me, the interesting bit here is that John Munden didn't turn the money away. Generally, it's wise to avoid any appearance of impropriety, between police and the people who are being investigated, including their families. Even though John Munden couldn't know at the time that one of the Snedegers might come to the fore as a suspect, in Laura's case, I don't think I'm out of bounds suggesting that a cop should not be taking a bag of cash from a citizen who is demanding certain things be done in the investigation.
1: They had different areas people they wanted to watch and stuff. And Steve did, he, he, took, them, he took them cash money. And said, Here, hire all the people you need to hire. I think I really believe Steve was in the complete
0: dark as to what happened to his daughter. Unless he hit the nail on the head, I don't know. Now we've got Mundin investigating the case. He's got a couple people, <clears throat> excuse me, that he, that, uh, uh, more than just those two, but a, a bunch of people that Steve is saying, Look into all these people. I want you to surveil all these people, right. business associates. But then, Steve, and this is from Munden, he's telling the story later in newspaper articles. Steve comes to him and says, I'm going to get, take Tony to, get Tony to come to New Orleans and I'm going to find out what he knows. He tells Munden this before he does it. And Munden doesn't say, no, that's a bad idea, don't do it, you are forbidden to do it, I'm a cop and if you go near him, you're in trouble. No, he doesn't do that. He says, Steve... Why, why don't you just talk to him here in Caramel? Why do you have to, you know, go elsewhere? Now, <laughs> I just don't understand. That's the second time he talks to someone before Snedeker goes off and ends up killing someone, as far as we know.
1: Of course, when the Snedeker started pointing fingers at people, that's when I first learned the names Lambert and McCullough. You know, I had been around there when I the, the old company. I quit a long time ago. And then when we moved to Greenwood, of course, Brenda didn't port for me anymore either. Uh, it's 45 miles drive. <laughs> so she didn't work for me anymore either at that point. Now, I knew they had been talking to people about buying the oil company before we ever left Greensboro. I mean, they were already talking about moving to Florida. So, but I never heard any names mentioned.
0: So it's a it's a couple months after, but before she was found, which was eight months after. So somewhere before that eight months, you remember hearing them pointing the finger at these two? What do you? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that was the
1: first thing. That was that was the first names out of their mouth.
0: Both of them, Trudy and um, Steve.
1: Well, it, well, just oh yeah, yeah.
0: They were both pointing the finger at at the Lamberts. I Lambert mean, and McCullough. And McCullough. <clears throat> that's interesting if if we fast forward and we think that Trudy accidentally or whatever was responsible for killing her daughter that she would have the balls to start pointing her finger at someone else
2: you well, know well I'm sure that was at
1: Steve's behest because when Steve got got here which was like I don't know day day and a half after the Lord disappeared he didn't fly up Him and his oldest son drove up from Florida. Me, I'm getting off 1st a damn airplane. They drove up? They drove up.
0: So as soon as they get there, he's pointing the finger at Lambert and McCullough. Yes. Like, immediately.
1: Steve Steve made this comment uh, after Lambert disappeared. After he admitted meeting Lambert in New Orleans, he says, Hey, do you think... if uh, if you if you dump somebody in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, you might be able to them.
0: He said <laughs> that to you?
1: No, he asked he did ask John London that. I was there when he said that asked him that though. What? I did hear that come out of his mouth. And what's more <laughs> is and I oh, crap. Who was it? Somebody told me. I'd have to. I have to think about it for a minute before i blurt out a name. But rumor had it that she went up and took him up in an airplane, left New Orleans from the airport, flew out over the Gulf of Mexico, killed the engine, said, oh, man, we're going down here. Put this parachute on and jump. And that's exactly what Tony Lambert did.
0: And then and it he... Was a parachute. And the parachute was messed up, uh, uh, intentionally. There was no parachute. <laughs> oh, there was nothing in it. Yeah. So and, he, I,
1: and again, before I forgot the name. I gotta think about this. To think, who it was, and it was like, I, like they had. I'm, I'm not so sure it wasn't
0: Well, he was. It, it might have been because when I was going through the. Through Lambert's, when I was going through Lambert's police file, his wife was doing some recorded phone calls with Tony McCullough, and uh, she did one with Tony McCullough and one with the uh, law enforcement officers. And during those phone conversations, um, Buck was mentioned as um, by Tony McCullough. When she was asking him, well, how was he the last time you guys saw him? And he was saying, well, Buck said this and Buck said that. And Buck said the last time you saw him, he was fine. He was upset, you know. So Buck...
1: Well, Buck, let me back up and say uh, I don't want you to lose your train of thought. But I believe, I think it was Tony McCullough. I think him and Lambert were both chemists. Uh, And I think McCullough actually worked with Buck at Chrysler.
0: I I will have to look into that um, possible connection to how the two of them knew each other because McCullough's the one that didn't die he's the only one that lived Um, right you know You,
1: you know that story too don't you
0: Yeah, about the Soldier of Fortune magazine and the hit. (laughs) Come on, this story just gets crazier and crazier. It's nuts. Yes, it does. It's crazy. So uh, let's just circle back one second, and be very clear. So you're standing there, and you're hearing Steve ask a law enforcement officer, John Munden, or say to him something about if you dump a body in the Gulf of Mexico, is anyone going to find him?
1: Yeah. I mean, did you... I heard that question come out of Steve's mouth to John
0: Munden. And what was his... What was going on? What was his facial expressions? What? what I mean, Steve, was he being? Well, John,
1: I get his eyes lit up, and he looked at him, and I think this is the exact words. Well, no, I don't think he'd ever find that person.
0: And, <laughs> uh, well, and Steve, what was Steve's attitude like that? Was he like being snarky about it? I mean, was he like, what was no, his? It
1: was almost. It was almost. It was almost a serious kind of thing. Because this was this was after the fact. After after Lambert disappeared. After the New Orleans meeting is when 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 he asked that question.
0: Where were you guys when this conversation occurred?
1: Uh, we were either at the police at the sheriff's office or at Steve's house. I
0: don't recall. Wow. I mean, it's so, their relationship is so strange to me, Snedeker and Munden. You know, like it's so they were so intertwined in some ways and. You know, one chasing the other and he you know I just I just can't wrap my head around it. I can't it's almost like he's Steve was taunting him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and Steve would do that.
0: Stay tuned.